Hey everyone, before we get started with this episode of The Final Third, I just want to let you guys know that you should all follow our Twitter account, at Final Third Show. Uh, we'll definitely give you a follow. It's really important to us that we interact with our audience, so give us a follow there. And as always, make sure to you know give us a follow, give us a rating. We have a great show for you coming up. We talk all about college soccer and if the MLS Super Draft is actually important. And we also talk about, you know, things like th th does COVID-19 make having international games immoral? Really, really important uh, debate that we have, as well as all the news and predictions that we have on this week's episode of The Final Third. Thanks for watching. Welcome back to The Final Third. My name is AJ. I'm everyone's favorite Minnesota United, West Ham, and U.S. Men's National Team fan. And I'm joined today with... Uh, Jack Seepersod, and I am the resident Chelsea, Minnesota United, and Atalanta, B.C. fan here. And uh, I am uh, glad to be back on another episode of The Final Third. Yes, so glad to be back. We're on episode three feels like episode 100 at this point but we're so glad that everyone's with us you know uh in the past couple episodes we've seen great growth just from the first two episodes we're already in 14 states and three countries and to to get to that point on only the third episode is really 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 great i mean a th big thank you to anyone listening a uh, big thank you to anyone that's been following our twitter uh at final third show if you haven't uh already followed us on twitter Follow us there. We've gotten some great engagement there through our tweets, and we lo we love following people back, and we love talking to them. So, uh, give us a follow there. What do you think, Jack? Yeah, uh, and in addition to our Twitter, you're going to want to start following our YouTube channel, which oh, yeah. we're going to be posting on starting with clips from this episode. So, if yes. you want to get a sense of what we look like, and you want to see, you know, uh, which you don't actual... want, you don't want to, you don't want to see that. You might not want to, but if you want to see, you know, our facial reactions when someone makes an absurd claim, I've made some absurd predictions, so I'm sure yes. you'd like to see AJ's face when I make a few more of those in the in this episode. Uh, so, you know, make sure to follow the YouTube channel, which is in our link tree on Twitter, and I believe it's in the podcast description as well. Yeah, yeah. And as always, uh, if you like the show follow it give it a review and uh tell your friends tell your dad about the show all right with that out of the way let's go on to what we start off our show with which is always the big stories five big stories that anyone that follows u.s soccer and soccer in general should know so let's start out with the first one and we'll we'll stay stateside for this one uh so let's talk about the flurry of managers that that came through uh mls this week so, so, so starting out, we had Chris Armas, who led the New York Red Bulls to a supporter shield and then sub subsequent mediocrity. Uh, he's going to take the mantle for Toronto FC from Greg Vanny, who left for the LA Galaxy. We also had former Manchester United player and former England women's manager Phil Neville as he joins Inter Miami. And he's also been hired alongside Chris Henderson, who was previously of Seattle, and he became their sporting director. And finally, we have Ernan Losada, who was previously of Beershot of the Belgian First Division League. He is joining DC United for the season. And all these represent different types of MLS managers. 
Armus is a decent, but you know, relatively unexciting hire that brings a high press system and extensive knowledge of the league and all of its rules. Uh, Losada, in my opinion, is an exciting young foreign coach who will bring in high energy playing, a ver very vertical style of playing to a city who, de you know, let's be honest, desperately needs some excitement. And the only question is, can he adapt to a completely, completely different league? And Phil Neville, well, let's be honest, he's a semi-nepotism hire who really hasn't done much at a high level. You know, did good with the England team, but now he's going to need all the support he can get from their new sporting director because he knows how the league works, and we'll see how Phil does. But, Jack, I want to ask you, of these three, can you rank how well you think they're going to do this upcoming season between Armas, Losada, and Neville? Yeah, uh, honestly, that's a pretty easy question for me. Uh, number one's got to be Chris Armas, like you said, MLS experience. Even though it's uh, he he's been relatively media me mediocre with the New York Red Bulls in recent yeah, years, yeah. he still knows the league, and I think he'll do pretty well. Uh, uh, and then we'd have Losada in second to DC, just because you know, as you said, very young manager can probably adapt pretty quickly, uh, and you know is is probably there because he's very qualified and he was probably their first choice at least or very high up there and then last would be phil neville just because like you said nepotism and the signing reeks of it but he's also he's also only managed in england and that's going to be a really big change to adapt to and it'll be interesting to see how he deals with it but i can't see it being ultimately successful right away yeah. So I think I mean, he's I'd in rather, for a rough first I'd rather season. be in Miami than England, so, I mean, fair play to him. Very true. It, it is yeah. great for the weather. We'll see if it's good for Miami. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't you take us off to number two? Yeah, so uh, going on from the U.S. over to Germany, we had an exciting game last Wednesday in the DFB Pokal. Uh, where Bayern Munich, the current holders of the Champions League and of the DFB Pokal, were knocked out by second-tier Holstein Kiel on penalties, 6-5. to five. So, uh, all in all, Bayern should have won this game. They were leading uh, up until the 90th minute, 2-1. to one, And then in the 95th minute, uh, Holstein Kiel had, had a player come through. Uh, Hoke Wall, I no, I'm, I destroyed that pronunciation. But, nah, that sounds uh, about right. <laughs> he, he scored in the 90-plus fifth minute and took uh, took it all the way to penalties. And somehow Manuel Neuer just couldn't come up with the saves necessary to uh, to keep them out. Uh, and uh, I don't remember who Oh, Bayern uh, Mark Rocca missed from, uh, from the spot. And every single Holstein Kiel penalty was converted. So this is just a huge uh, blow to Bayern Munich after they've gone on such a long, unbeaten run in in general and have had amazing success in this competition. To be knocked out in the second round by a second tier, uh, by a second tier club, it's it's sad for Bayern, but it's cool for me as a soccer fan at least because oh, it yeah, goes back course. to the discussion we had yet uh, last week about how it's the magic of the cup anything can happen second tier and third tier sides can upset the big the big guns of the league and uh that's exactly what i wanted to see from a cup game and that's what i got so 
AJ, how are you feeling about this? What do you think? I'm well. First, I feel kind of bad for Bayern. They've now lost more games in 2021 than they did in 2020. That's tough. That's tough. But as someone who enjoys the Bundesliga, I'm really excited to see it really open up because I'm I'm thinking like, oh, who's gonna win now? Is it is it Leverkusen? Is it Dortmund? Is it gonna be is it gonna be maybe RB Leipzig? Could it be like uh, Eintracht Frankfurt because they you know won a couple years ago? And, you know, that's really exciting for me to think about who's up next and, you know, who can take the mantle away from Bayern Munich. So let's move back across the Atlantic to Canada now, because Montreal Impact of the MLS recently rebranded into Club de Foot Montreal. Not, not, not football, but foot. And they have this circular crest with their name on the border and there's a snowflake in the middle. Uh, they have some arrows as part of the snowflake, which is pays homage to the Montreal subway system. And they also have the design. Uh, it's inspired by native Mohawk drawings. And honestly, I don't, I don't hate it. We got a lot of flack on Twitter uh, at Final Third Show because, you know, we were, we're saying you know, it, it's a really cool design. Because I, I think it is. I think it's really unique. But if it was an extension team, then I'd be excited. But it's not. It's a rebrand, and I don't think that they should have rebranded. Because they've had this branding, this identity for 30 years, and now they're turning their back on it as if it was nothing. And the reason why they did this, the, the front office of Montreal did this, was because they w said they wanted to become a global brand. They wanted to become more recognizable worldwide. And that doesn't actually get you anything. Because nobody looks at a football team's logo and is like, oh yeah, I'm going to follow them because they have a cool logo. You also have to have a good team, a really good, exciting team. And that's something that they haven't done. They haven't invested. So, okay, you can rebrand. But make sure the team's good or else you end up with a terrible rebrand and a terrible team like Chicago. So by rebranding and not actually investing in the team and just having this like half-hearted reasoning to why they rebranded, they end up alienating their existing fan base and not getting any more fans because the team, let's be honest, it still sucks. Jack, do you have any opinions on this? Yeah, um, I, I've just got to say, as a fan of the old crest, I have tons of Montreal Impact merchandise. You know, I have an old Ignacio Piatti jersey. Oh, I have wow. a decorative pillow of the Montreal Impact logo. And I loved the Fleur de Lis on the logo. But, you know, it, it's, it looks like a pretty fun change. I, I really enjoy it, personally. I... I also like how they changed their their name to be more French. You know, Club de Foot Montreal, uh, Jouer de Foot in French means mm -hmm. play football. So it's a really good way to kind of pay homage to a more French-speaking province of Canada. And, you know, like you said, rebranding is one thing to get more people on board. But in order to get people on board, you've really got to get the front office to commit to some exciting signings. Yeah which, uh, you know, they've really needed since Ignacio Piatti left for Argentina. So they really need to find someone to replace him and to get their attack fully firing because otherwise they're going to get knocked out of the playoffs or not even qualify once again. So they really need to fix, it, fix that. And, uh, you know, the rebrand looks like a positive start, but hopefully they do something good on the pitch as well. Yeah, they really need a player that can make an impact and with that i'll let you take the the fourth story yeah uh speaking of players who have made an impact across the 
soccer world all over. Nice. Uh, we have Wayne Rooney, who announced his retirement in order to coach Darby County. So Wayne Rooney, obviously a, an incredible player uh, who started out at Everton and uh, went on to do incredible things for Manchester United. And, you know, he also had a pretty successful stint in MLS, I'd argue, with DC United. And uh, I, I still remember his excellent goal where he tracked all the way back, only player tracking back to prevent a, a one-on-one chance, and then just hit it ha- halfway up the field to to another player. Uh, I, I can't remember who it was, and he volleyed it in for a last-minute winner. But it, it just shows how good of a player he was at every single level. And he is going to be so... He's going to be regarded as one of the best English players of all time and possibly one of just the best forwards of all time in the history of the Premier League because he has been incredible. Uh, he's, I, I mean, I don't know what else I can really say other than he's had an awesome career as a player and I wish him the best of luck at Derby County because, uh, you know, if they, if they could use uh, some superstar help, uh, it would be right now where they're sitting in the relegation zone, I believe. Yes. So they they could really use the help. So I wish all the best for Wayne Rooney in that. What do you think? I think that his coaching career is not going off to a good start. I think they lost 1-0 to Rotterdam uh, the last weekend. So not great, but, you know, he's a great player. Obviously, Manchester United legend, English legend. So I wish him all the best. But there's another legend that's not doing so well by the name of Lionel Messi and that's where our fifth story and final story kicks off uh because Athletic Club beat Barcelona in the Supercopa de Espana final three to two and the story here is that Barcelona choked it uh they had chances at the end that they could have put away make it three one instead they choked it uh conceded un- two unanswered goals and to be honest, the refs the refs weren't great. I, I watched the game. The refs kind of let the athletic players get away with some diving and commit some fouls. And I'm surprised I didn't see any more cards. But Barcelona, to Athletic's credit, played terribly. And Athletic Bilbao just pounced on that. Their defense was a mess. Subbing off Dest was a mistake. I mean, he was injured, but you know it, it, it's hard to really swallow that pill. But Jordi Alba, Araujo, and Langlet were like terrible like actually terrible they played really conservatively there was terrible management on the defensive side from ronald coleman and even though griezmann got two goals both of athletic club's first two goals were terribly defended like really really bad marking from uh all the defenders and they were able to really pounce on any opportunity that barcelona left open and that third goal by williams was a screamer from the edge of the box you can't fault the results, but maybe the worst part about it is that Messi, for the first time in his Barcelona career, got a red card because he slapped Athletics Molina in the head. And, you know, that if that doesn't tell you just the kind of disgrace it was from Barcelona, I, I don't know what, what else to tell you. It was, it was a game that they should have won, and they just kind of they slapped it away, I guess. Jack, what do you think about this disappointment? Yeah, I mean... 
Messi was definitely frustrated. I mean, the red card came in the 121st minute. Yeah. So it just shows how much frustration there was in that. Uh, but I've got to say, like, at Athletic Club's victory is huge because uh, if you know anything about Athletic Club Bilbao, you'll know that they're based in the Basque region mm-hmm. and that they only accept players who are from the Basque region or have relatives from the Basque region. So it's it's a very exclusive club, but it also makes it so it's sort of like a family. And that this is such a huge accomplishment for them because they took out, in the last two rounds, they took out Real Madrid and yes. Barcelona, the two giants of Spanish football. And they it's just a huge victory for their little Basque family. And it's, it, it was awesome to see. And also, uh, I, I think Inaki Williams is a top class player. I really enjoy watching him play. So watching him get the winning goal was incredible, especially when it was such a good, a a well-taken goal. So I was over the moon to see that, even though I would have liked it if, uh, you know, if Barcelona got maybe one more trophy for Messi, you know, before he goes off, presumably this summer. I don't know. Anything could happen. But it was also really cool to see such a unique club in Spain win this trophy. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would like to see a trophy for Dest versus Gino Dest, but, you know, can't get everything. Can't get everything. Well, speaking of uh, Sergio Dest, uh, why don't we go on to our next se- section where we talk, uh, or rather, where AJ talks about the yes. U.S. men's national team in the U.S. men's national team corner. Yes. Welcome to my corner where I talk about all the things related to the men's side of U.S. soccer. And I got, you know, it's been a quiet week, but let's get started off with all the things that happened as quiet as it was. So... First off, you know, Mark McKenzie made his way to to Genk, the Belgian Giants. Uh, He will likely get his first start and first minutes in the next game. But uh, for this last weekend, he was an unused sub. Matthew Hoppe in the Bundesliga, who scored the equalizer in Schalke's 3-1 loss to Eintracht Frankfurt. So, yeah, he scored the the equalizer to make it 1-1. But it ended up being in vain. However, because of that goal, he has four goals in two games. And has now made himself known as a potential depth option at striker. Moving to England in the Premier League, we had two Americans face off. Well, first there's Anthony Robinson, who earlier in the week played in a 1-1 draw against Tottenham for Fulham FC. And later in the week played in a loss to Chelsea. And in the Chelsea game, he was making a lot of key passes. He was dribbling very well. Overall, Fulham's most creative player however right before halftime he gets a red card for a nasty tackle on Aspilicueta and just kind of threw the game away for Fulham Uh, on the opposite side of the pitch and on the opposite team we had Christian Pulisic who had again another quiet game he had some good runs made some good plays especially at the end of the game to kill to kill it off and he's been getting a lot of flack on Twitter and overall I don't really see why he's getting this i think he's still a good player i think he's still making good plays and adding to a chelsea team who previously were kind of in a rut he's still been one of their creative players so uh leave my guy alone that's what i'm saying and as previously mentioned sergino dest moving down to spain 
played 45 minutes in Barca's Supercopa loss. He played decently, but he felt discomfort in his leg. That may have uh, hurt his chances at really getting into the game and helping them play well, and eventually he got subbed off. So moving on to some transfer move, we had uh, Andres Perea, who's an Orlando City player. This isn't a necessarily a regular transfer. This is a transfer from one country to another because he switched from the Colombia national team to the U.S. men's national team. As I said before, he plays for Orlando, and he's a name to look out for. He's only 19. He was on loan for Orlando last year and just made a permanent transfer. And, you know, he's a really good player. He's a defensive midfielder, and I think that he'll get some minutes for the Olympic team as we gear up for the Summer Olympics. Now, here's uh, another transfer that's been a really long time coming. In fact, it's not even done yet, but we're reaching the end, and that's Reynolds to Juventus. This season, he will stay with Benevento for the rest of the season because of a cap on non-EU players, but the following season, he's going to be joining Juventus. Next is Jordan Morris of Seattle Sounders moving to Swansea City of the Championship on a six-month loan. And this is something that we should be excited about. A lot of people were saying, you know, why is an MLS player going to the championship? He's one of our best players. Why is he going to the second division in England? Well, you know, it's only a six-month loan. Uh, Swansea are pushing for promotion. And overall, it's a good chance for him to get some experience in Europe, which he doesn't actually have right now. So I think people need to really calm down and accept that it's a pretty good option for him. And then finally, before we end off this segment... The Olympic qualifying date is set. It's going to be in March in Guadalajara. And this is uh, getting ready for the Olympic tournaments, the U23 tournament that we have to play well enough in our qualifiers to actually advance towards. So uh, we're in a group of Mexico, Costa Rica, and the Dominican Republic. We need to get into the top two of the group in order to advance to the semifinals. And in the semifinals, if we win that game, we qualify for the Olympics. And this is a, a tournament setup, so it's going to be in like three weeks, uh, all condensed in those three weeks. So really excited to see which players we bring in. Really excited to see if we can qualify for the first time in, what, 12 years? It's been a long time. And that's all from the U.S. Men's National Team Corner. Uh, join us next week for when we talk about all the goals that hopefully actually get scored this time by Americans. All right? And with that, we're going to take a quick break and go on to the main portion of our episode, the discussion portion. All right, and we're back. Jack, why don't you get us started with our domestic debate topic? Yeah, so right now we're entering the portion of the preseason for the U.S. leagues, talking about super drafts for the NWSL and also for MLS, which are going to be the... NWSL just had their draft, and the MLS Super Draft is going to be on the 21st. And it's not and it's not without changes, as it's been cut down from four rounds down to three, mostly due to some MLS teams passing in later rounds. So yes. this brings up the, uh, the question, what is the level of importance of college soccer and the Super Draft in developing U.S. players, both for the women's national team or women's teams and the men's national team? So, uh, AJ, what, why don't you start off uh, on what you, your thoughts are, or initial thoughts at least? Well, I actually want to ask you a question first of all. And this is actually a, a trivia question. 
Oh no. I want you to guess in the past seven years, so from season the twenty fourteen season to now, how many players that were drafted ended up on an MLS best eleven? So they had to be drafted from the twenty fourteen season to now. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna guess six. Six? Ooh, yes. actually that's not a bad guess. It's four. Ah. So, okay. so for pe- so for people who are confused, it's players who were drafted in the 2014 season onwards, and so four players who were drafted 2014 onwards, 77 best 11 selections were possible, four out of 77. That's that's not great, and that goes to show how you know waning the popularity of the super draft is, how waning the importance of it is. Because, you know, a lot of the selections for the, the MLS Best 11 were uh, previously drafted. But those are guys who were drafted from 2013 and before. You know, at, at that point, they're veterans. Now, the 2014-15 class of draftees are between 25 and 30. And yet, a lot of them still aren't making a lot of big splashes. And there was once a time when a lot of domestic players played in college, our 2002 World Cup quarterfinal team, most of them came from college, but now it's just not the case. So overall, I don't think that the college soccer scene is as important. I think there are things that we can change about it, but that just shows exactly how much it's kind of waned in the past couple of years. What do you think, Jack? Yeah, well, the Super Draft is an interesting portion of U.S. soccer just because I think that the whole reason we have the Super Draft is to make MLS more palatable to more Amer- traditional, I guess, American sports fans. Uh, because, you know, the draft is a huge part of the NBA. Mm-hmm. It's a huge part of the NFL. And I think MLS executives and NWSL executives are thinking, you know, this is a good way to get people into it. And think like, oh, this this seems like a pretty serious sport, and you know, there's a route for players that I know from my local team to get into these competitive places and like uh, play professionally. Right. But I also think that it's not gone exactly that way, and that calculation has been severely different for MLS teams because so many trades that I've seen, even just for this upcoming season have included trading away draft picks because teams simply don't value them as much because they feel like they could get a better deal for veteran players rather yes. than taking a gamble on these players. I mean, it can it can be great for some teams. Minnesota United had some excellent success with our draft picks. You know, They have all done incredible things for Minnesota United, but at the same time, a lot of other teams haven't had that same level of success and have been relying a lot more on their older guys to take over and, uh, you know, make make those game-changing plays for them. And I think it shows that the Super Draft has definitely been decreasing in importance. And overall, like, uh, at least talking about the women's side, because I've recently read uh, this book by Gwendolyn Oxenham, Under the Lights and in the Dark, Untold Stories of Women's Soccer, which was a really good book. Highly recommend uh, reading it if you're interested in uh, the U.S. women's national team or just women's soccer in general. And it talks, the first chapter and throughout the book, 
uh, Oxenham references Owie Lawn, who you might recognize as right, yeah. a pretty as a pretty big part of our women's national team. And her career to becoming a professional was very different. And while it involved going to college and playing soccer throughout it, a lot of her rise to prominence actually came from playing street soccer in New York City. And it shows how, you know, uh, the way that progression from younger pl people playing soccer to professional playing has changed a lot more than it used to be. And it shows right. kind of a different dynamic than other sports. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, the Super Draft is definitely becoming less and less important. But I think college soccer still plays an important role for a lot of other reasons. Yeah, I think, you know, college soccer, it is important. I don't want to discount that. It plays a really important role in our college landscape. But, like, as you were saying, there are different ways to going pro in soccer compared to, like, the NBA or NFL where going into college is a prerequisite, pretty much, to making a pro. But it's not creating as much pro players as we expected to and what it did back in the early 2000s. I mean, we have notable exceptions. We have... Jack Harrison, obviously, of Leeds, uh, Andre Blake, Kyle Lahren, Jackson Ewell, Dotson, Roldan, DK, Mueller, and Ibobasi. Those are players that I wrote down in the past couple of years. So I'm like, oh, no, they have been very, very good. But in 2019, eight teams passed in the third round and 13 passed in the fourth. And in 2020, those numbers rose to 11 and 16, respectively. That's showing that college soccer isn't as important. And you know, like you were saying, there's different paths to going pro to the point where a lot of GMs, they say that they'd rather sign a 21-year-old with 50 appearances than a college kid. And they can get that because of the homegrown academies. MLS clubs have academies. They have players who've been playing in their system. And now they get to sign them really, really early on and get them integrated, get them reps. So much so that good academies like RSL, Dallas, and New York Red Bulls, they have homegrowns that are younger than their draft picks just because they've been playing for them since they were 17, 18. And at that point, they're better players. And I, I want to bring this up because I'll, I'll, after this, I'll let you say what you need to say. But in 2019, Philadelphia Union traded all five of their super draft picks to FC Cincinnati. FC Cincinnati this season finished last. Philadelphia Union in the regular season finished first. The super draft for a lot of teams, if they can help it, they'll get rid of their picks and instead use that money to invest in other players because the super draft isn't as important. Now, Jack, uh, do you have anything else to say about the importance of the super draft in college soccer uh, before we go into maybe what they can do or what changes college soccer super draft can do to in order to increase its importance. Yeah. Well, just one other thing I wanted to mention, uh, because there's a big dynamic to mention about college soccer as well right. in, uh, professional, uh, in professional play is that there's a very large disparity. It seems like between women's and men's soccer as well, because with in, in college or pro it, it kind of, goes between the two because in a lot of men's teams sure. there's a lot more academies and opportunities to yeah. get into professional teams through those the the women's team is at least 
isn't as developed, I guess, in terms mm-hmm. of academies, it seems. So the importance of college soccer seems to be pretty big for at least women's soccer. And also, I'd argue that it's more competitive, at least, in, in the women's game in more yeah, areas yeah. in the U.S. So uh, I think that, you know, the super draft in the NWSL is is going to be really important in the years to come because it's where you're getting a lot more of your top talents in the U.S. than compared to the men's game where you have a lot more academy picks and you can, uh, you know, trade for younger players, you know. So it there's a pretty big disparity, I think, that needs to be talked about a little bit or at least uh, warrants a mention. Yeah. Okay. Well, do you have any ideas on what we can do because you know the nwsl draft obviously because the women's game isn't as developed to a high level they're going to be relying on college players a lot of our up-and-coming us wnt players come from college they're they're getting drafted into the nwsl that's not the case obviously with mls and us men's national team players so do you have any ideas on what the men's draft has to do can do in order to improve itself, make college soccer more important? Yeah, well, one thing for sure is because I saw, when I was doing some research on this, I saw some tweets and just comments on different places talking about how, you know, we should just get rid of the Super Draft, which I think is not the way to go. We definitely need it. Otherwise, you know, there's no point to anyone pursuing college soccer, at least in the... Can't, unless can't, you really enjoy it, right? Oh uh, yeah, unless you really enjoy it. But like to me, when I when I hear people say that, they're saying, "Why not just allow them to sign as free agents to the to teams?" Is there any reason why we can't do that in your mind? I mean, there there's no reason really for to not do that. I guess free agency would be a pretty good way to move forward. But at the same time, I think keeping the super draft around still provides some value. While teams do trade away picks, it does allow some teams who are looking for something different uh, for maybe to find those players who can be the next big thing, because there are instances in which it's been successful. Yeah. Uh, it, as limited as they may be, there are instances where it's been very clear that the Super Draft has, has done very nice things for a team. And I think that we should keep it around because... It gives those college players an opportunity to, you know, because if they want a higher education and they want to get a degree, they shouldn't have to choose between, you know, I want to play professionally and I, I, want, the, uh, I want a degree. I think it, it allows them to do that a lot more effectively than a free agency thing. That kind of gets outside of the realm of professional soccer and development, but yeah. I think it's important to mention. And then I, I also think that it's... It's just a fun occasion, and I think it does help potentially bring in some more fans. Because that's the other thing. MLS is still a growing league. It's much younger than any other major sports league in the U.S., and I think the Super Draft provides an awesome opportunity for it to gain new fans. So I think that what they can do to fix it, though, is maybe decrease the uh the number of of picks or at least the number yeah. of rounds like they already have yeah maybe instead of like uh you know three rounds maybe even cutting it down to two yeah i i'm i'll, I'll have to agree with you with the decreasing the rounds i think especially because 
you know, we, we have heard of teams passing, you know, all, all of the third and fourth rounds. And so what that means for MLS is it's saying these teams aren't identifying any talent that's worth taking out of college. And first of all, that's rough because that's like kind of insulting to college soccer. I'm sure there's there's maybe a little bit more talent, but whatever the case is, it's clear that we don't need that many rounds necessarily. So I think cutting down two rounds would be cool. Uh, or I, I came up with this uh, this alternative for the draft. We keep it three to four rounds, but we kind of do it how Major League Baseball, uh, the National Hockey League, and the Canadian Premier League do it up north, where college sports, you know, it's not as important because they have in-team development, uh, especially in uh, Major League Baseball. But what they do is that they draft a college player pretty much any time they want to really declare it after high school graduation. And they don't actually draft the player necessarily. They draft the player's rights. And so they can go back to college. They can uh, do whatever they want. But as soon as they come to MLS, until they say, like, oh, okay, I'm, I want to uh, – I'm done with college. I want to go up a level to MLS. That MLS team has their rights. They have the first say to say, like, Oh well, we drafted your rights, so uh, it's either we sign you or we we don't sign you, and then you can sign with someone else. That way, that way, if if players want, they can have that flexibility. And it's also good for teams because they get to choose two good players that are ready to come up, maybe in the first round, and then next couple of rounds they just take flyers on high potential players. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, I mean that sounds like a actually a really great system in in my opinion like you know drafting the rights rather than you know the player seems like a really good way to get the best of both worlds in this yeah yeah but there's also things we can do within college soccer that i think are even more important than just fixing the draft because honestly if it were up to me i'd cut it down to two rounds if they got rid of it i'd be fine i used to be really excited about the super draft but that was until they it went like completely online and it went online even before the pandemic last year it was completely over teleconference but to me the way that we make college soccer more important and thus the super draft more important cuz let's face it right now it's not is we actually build college soccer to prepare for the professional soccer scene because listen, college soccer is not built to make professional players it's just it's just not but it is important because it gives parents and students an incentive to keep on playing soccer, even if they're not good enough to make it into like a, a pro academy. And so that's really, really good because more players playing in general is really good for our soccer community, our soccer country. But it's not as effective because college soccer rules are completely different. And in order to better prepare you know pro professional soccer players when they play in college they should be playing by the same rules they should be playing the same game because college soccer is a very very different game than the professional game and they have they have unlimited subs i believe that's a bit hard to like really justify when you only get three or five during the pandemic in the professional game they have actual overtime they don't really have any draws and the clocks are counting down instead of counting up. Like, it's like any other sport, pretty much. 
And the worst part about college soccer in terms of its uh, differentiation between uh, the pro uh, the pro leagues and college soccer is the fact that it has a really congested schedule. Uh, college soccer, like a lot of other college sports, is seasonal. It's only in the fall, pretty much. And we need to be able to make it a full-year calendar because because it's so congested, all these players are playing you know, every other day, uh, three games a week for for how many weeks straight? And th- this is actually really alarming because you know, I have this study here. In 2010, the American Journal of Sports Medicine found that the injury rate for college soccer players who have played two games in a week was 25.6 injuries per 1,000 hours of exposure, while the rate for players who played one week, one game a week, sorry, was 4.1. So that's a huge decrease. And if players are beating themselves up, getting injured, not even playing by the same rules, they're not going to be ready for the professional game. And so maybe if that happens, we get college soccer off the ground playing, you know, the actual game of soccer that we know, the super draft might become more important because we'll have players that are ready to make it pro. And there's been talks about this happening, but overall, especially during the pandemic, they've, they've stalled. Oh, what do you think? Any any final thoughts? I, I went on a bit too long for that one, but no, I I'm I think that all makes sense because you know you've got to make college soccer an actual palatable option to pick from because you know with NFL and college football, yeah. you're you're seeing you're seeing uh, the same game being played, and well, there's n- so n- many... not necessarily the same, it's a, a little a little a bit little different, different, but, but overall, very similar, very similar, yes, very similar. And it, it's important to have that so the draft picks actually remain a feasible or good option. Because all of these clubs, whether we like to admit it or not, are operating like businesses. Yeah. They're, they're all making a calculated investment with this. And if they see a deal on a player that they can get by trading up a super draft pick, if they, and until we make college soccer an equally attractive proposition for clubs to choose from then it can never compete with being able to sign an mos veteran so we we need to make it one of those palatable options like you said and i think the only way we can do that is starting to restructure and revise how college soccer is played Mm -hmm. all right so basically super draft it's important but you know there's waning importance and the way we fix it is by a changing the format of the draft and be making some huge structural changes to the way that college soccer fundamentally operates that might be a little bit hard but hey we don't we don't come up with the actual the actual way they they get to this point we just we just make suggestions and then uh nothing comes of it all right with that let's go on to something that might be a little bit more important than college soccer and that's our international debate topic and as you know, COVID-19 is a, a really big deal, that's understatement of the year. But the question is, with international games happening and you know soccer games in general happening amidst rising cases, the question arises, is it morally correct to currently have international games right now? And we have Jack putting on his, his what is that, France football France, star? yep, France. Okay. So, Jack, I, 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 want, I want to hear a one-word answer out of both of us, and you first. Is it morally correct to have international games right now? 
very simple for me. That would be a no. All right, and for me, that would be a less a, <laughs> a, a less simple no. A less simple no. There's a lot of caveats in my no. I could say yes, and there'd still be a lot of caveats. So I want you to kick things off for us. Yeah, well, since you said one-word answer, uh, I had to say no, but mine also has quite a few caveats. Uh, but, I hate when we do this. Yeah, but it it's, it, it's very tricky because, uh, like AJ said, I just put on my French national team scarf. And France has had a great period right now where they've been playing international games. They made it out of their... Uh, nations league group ahead of portugal they've had a very successful uh few months in the international stage however it doesn't make it as a fan of france it still doesn't make it morally correct in my eyes to have these international games just because you know we've seen in the uk this new covid variant is more transmissible it's not necessarily more dangerous the 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 studies are still out on that but it's more transmissible it's much it's much more contagious overall and we we should uh we should take it very seriously and i think having these international games going on right now completely ignores the well-being of the players over trying to give one thing that i've seen some people comment on is oh it it gives so much joy to see our national team play yeah and like i i don't think nationalism should be a substitute for player health and safety especially when you have like really diverse teams like uh you know i i guess the french national team might not be the best example because most of their players are playing in either the premier league or in league on so it's it's usually one of those two, but other like, more like, diverse uh, teams. USA or Brazil. Exactly, where they have players all over. Like, Brazil has players in U- ranging from, like, Ukraine to actually in Brazil to everywhere in between there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the U.S. has people all around Europe, uh, some in, like, Central and South America, I'd presume, like, at least one or two players in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, so it's just all over the place. And you... You need to weigh the safety with that because with so many players coming from so many different places, it's tough to make sure that none of that is uh, no uh, coronavirus is being transmitted between these players because, you know, someone could test negative on one day and then a few days later develop symptoms and test positive. And then by that time, you everyone else already has the possibility of having it. And you just potentially put an entire pool of players at risk. And I think that it's really unfortunate that, you know, this is the way the world is right now. Because I love international soccer. It's what first got me into watching uh, the actual sport. I I watched the World Cup in 2014 in Brazil. I watched, my first game I watched was Germany versus Brazil. And I was hooked since then. That so, that is a very interesting game to that, start. I did not that, know that about you. That's that's good. So that that was the first game I watched, and I because of that I love international soccer, but right. it doesn't change my opinion that it just doesn't seem morally correct to have those international games right now, especially with teams from all over. That being said, I will say that it could you could make an argument for it potentially being a little safer, slightly, very a very important thing slightly safer and slightly more more okay 
if you had teams that were all in one place. So, for example, the U.S. men's national team recently played a friendly against El Salvador, I believe, and they chose all, or at least pretty much all, players who were in the U.S. And that is a way that we could manage this a little bit better, Uh, although it's tough to do that while also not, like, losing a lot of competitive integrity, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. In in some cases, but I think it could be a way to get the best of both worlds. Although I'd still lean to saying if we're going to have international games, I'd rather have the full international team than just like one that's just been thrown together just for the sake of having the game. So uh, that's kind of my opinion on that. AJ, how are you feeling about it? Uh, pretty much the same exact thing. To me, if the team is being very careful and transmission doesn't happen, because they're they're testing it then it's it's you know okay and if they're like very careful about it's okay but overall i mean it is an optics thing we all we have to admit that where it just doesn't feel right to play these games when so many working class people are getting sick and dying because of it and you know we look around the premier league they're having massive amounts of cancellations uh, sports across uh, the the country and the world. You know, we look at the NBA. There's a bunch of cancellations because they they can't contain it. They can't contain it. And we have in America 200,000 new cases seemingly uh, every couple days, every day. And that's really tough to swallow. While at the same time watching international games. And while I agree, like having a January camp where it's all MLS players is better than just having them all like come in from all different places it's still very hard to accept i am gonna watch we are going to talk about that game when it happens but the way that i look at it is you know club club leagues i can i can see i can see why you need to have club competitions why it's important for players to keep on playing why it's important for the workers to keep on playing uh for the the teams to keep on playing they're not playing but the international games they're the, they're the sprinkles on top. We don't necessarily need them in order to keep the football world going. We don't need, necessarily need them to, to keep people employed. So in my opinion, if we stopped international games, at least for the next two months, then we could come back in the March window and reconsider where we're at. But until then, I don't see how we can have international games in January. In fact, I guess we don't have any international windows until March. So maybe we just like, we just completely shut it down for a couple more months, see where we are, come back uh, come back in April, come back in May, and look at it then. Until then, we have to ask, is it worth it? And I recently read a tweet, I don't know if you've heard about this, from Carl Anthony Towns, a local mm-hmm. uh, NBA player for the Minnesota Timberwolves. He got COVID. Uh, they had to postpone a game. He lost his mom and six other close family members due to COVID-19. And what really made me decide on this standpoint for this debate, because this was after we came up with uh, this discussion, was that I, I, I realized in that moment, and I've known this for a while, but I, I truly realized that these players aren't just entertainers, but they're also workers. They're also people with family. And if if you have to play 
an NBA game if you have to play a Premier League game, okay. But why would we risk it even further to mix all these people from different places in one place? Is it worth it? No, of course not. Do you have anything else to say before we head on to predictions? Yeah, just one other thing about transmission and everything. Because even club games, it's tough to say, like, uh, in the Champions League, for example, to have these. Because uh, last semester, right. I think I might have mentioned this on the show before, I took a soccer history class. And our final project was to do a project on some aspect of so- of recent or less recent soccer history. I chose to do it on, on Atalanta, the team from Italy. And what I found was... Some of the first cases of it- in Italy of COVID came up because right, of their yeah. trip to Valencia, and they actually encountered patient zero fra- in Spain and spread it to Italy. And That's that terrible. and it just shows, oh, no. like, even, even though it, it was awesome for Atalanta because they won a Champions League knockout round game. That's incredible. But it also shows the inherent, like, risks to it. And especially with this new uh, strain of coronavirus coming around, it it's better to be on the safer side, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I'm I'm I try and stay an optimist and hope that the situation will be better by the summer for the Euros. But if it's not much better, and if if it's looking similar to what we saw last summer, I'd even go as far as to say it might be morally incorrect to have the Euros, hey, which would yeah maybe which would suck because i want to see olivier Giroud win the euros personally yeah. because Not he's my euros. favorite player yeah euros gold cup i think copa america's this summer exactly. as well olympics like there's a lot on the table so we'll <laughs> we'll see we'll see how morally correct we can stay as we approach those big tournaments that we want to watch yeah but speaking of big tournaments we want to watch speaking of big games we want to watch Let's talk about the predictions that we made last week and some predictions for big games that are coming up this week. So let's start off with last week. Uh, PSG versus Marseille in the Super Cup. Uh, PSG won 2-1, obviously. Uh, Goals from Icardi and Neymar. And on Marseille's side, Dimitri Payet, West Ham legend. Uh, Pochettino gets his first trophy as... Not a manager. I think he's won before, but it's... uh, ever since taking over Spurs as his first trophy. Uh, I said 2-0, so I get 10 points, because our. I guess I should go over the, the point system. 10 points for getting the result right, and 20 for getting the exact scoreline right. So I said 2-0, I get 10 points. Jack said 3-0, he gets 10 points. So, yeah. Yeah, and then our next game that we had a prediction for was Liverpool versus Manchester United in the Premier League, which came to a 0-0 draw. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, this this is was probably to be expected, even though I didn't predict this. Top matches do end up being 0-0 quite a few times. It's a curse. It's a curse. It is. They're playing not to lose, and both teams looked rather harmless in it. Uh, Liverpool outshot United 17-8, to but just couldn't muster anything out of it. They they couldn't break through David De Gea, which is surprising given his recent form. But, you know, yeah. uh, they it, it still ends up a 0-0 draw. United are top of the table. Uh, AJ guessed z- or uh, predicted 0-0, so he got yeah. 20 points. Right. And I predicted it 2-1, so I got 0 points. Yeah, 
you were uh, you're pretty off there. You're I was pretty off there. I had some pretty awful predictions this week, and we'll get through those as we go through this. Yeah, we'll get through those. How about you take this next one? Because I uh, don't know much about Syria as much as you do, but yeah. So I can I can talk about this Inter versus Juventus and Syria. This was a pretty big game and potentially a season defining game for Inter. Right. Uh, Inter ended up carrying this through two to zero. And Juventus just got completely outplayed. They didn't look dangerous at all. Weston McKenney, you know, from the U.S. men's national yeah. team, did come on. He had a little bit of a spark, but it was way too late. And goals from Arturo Vidal and Barella meant a lot for Inter. And, you know, it it's looking increasingly likely that the title for Serie A will be coming to Milan one way or another. Yeah. Uh, it just depends. Either red or blue. It just depends on which on uh, which side is able to maintain their form for the rest of the season. But this is the kind of series defining or season defining game for Inter that they needed, and could prove to be a really bad mark on Juventus. Uh, yes. But neither of us predicted this right. AJ, you predicted three to four for Juventus, yeah, and I predicted two to three. So we we both should have had some faith in Inter. But, you know, uh, we, we both wanted to stick with uh, our good friend Weston McKinney. Yes. <laughs> but that that's how it played out. All right. How about we go to the Netherlands where Ajax played Feyenoord. Uh, ended up being a 1-0 win to Ajax, and it was a very close game. Uh, 1-0, in short, is kind of flattering. I thought it would definitely be 1-1 because Feyenoord was by far the better team in the second half. They were unlucky to score. Uh, one or even two goals, perhaps. Lots of wasted chances. But the goal did come from uh, Gravenberch, assisted by my boy Sebastian Allaire. He didn't really do much, I'll be honest. It was kind of a routine pass, and then Gravenberch did the rest. But I guessed 1-0, so that's 20 points to me. Jack, other way, 0-1 to Feyenoord. He gets 0 points for that. And this next game is kind of the the marquee matchup for us. I was trash-talking Jack a lot during this, and it it all came up moot, and that it's Chelsea versus Fulham. Jack, why don't you explain this, Mr. Chelsea fan? Yeah, so uh, this game, as a Chelsea fan, had me doing the normal motions of having a heart attack almost every minute. Uh, so Chelsea missed very early chances. Uh, Mount hit the crossbar in the first yeah. half. Hakim Ziyech made a few attempts, which were... Pretty loose and pretty harmless, to be honest. Uh, Frank Lampard's son himself, Mason Mount, Mason Mount, ends up getting the goal after hitting the crossbar. And, you know, uh, maybe we'll silent the Mount haters for a few weeks before they come up again. But that's uh, how it played out. Uh, AJ guessed a 1-1 draw. And I guessed 3-1. So I, techn- I I got the result rights for 10 points. But unfortunately, I also said Timo Werner would score. Which yeah. I don't know why... I don't know why I said it. He almost did it in the 90th minute, but then he dragged it far wide of the goal. Yeah, it was it was it was pretty it was a pretty bad attempt and he is so low on confidence and I just hope he comes good for it soon enough. Yeah. I don't hope that. I hope it, I hope he keeps on sucking cuz it's pretty funny. But it is you know, it I, is a, it is funny to be As fair. a person, I feel for him and I, I hope him the best, but I hope myself the best in future matchups because I win this one and I hope to keep that streak going. I win 50-20. to 20. Uh, Our series is now tied 1-1. Uh, 
So now let's kick on to this week's predictions, where hopefully, I mean, not hopefully, I, I'll definitely win this one. So let's we'll kick see it off. That. Let's kick it off with a, a rematch, a rematch of literally like last week's prediction. We're going back to Manchester versus Liverpool, this time at Old Trafford. Jack, this is the FA Cup. FA Cup, what, fourth round? Insane mm-hmm. matchup. What do you think? Okay, so I know that this is going to be a risky move, but right away I'm just going to say Liverpool are going to win. I'm going to go for a 1-0 win for Liverpool, uh, personally. And the reason why, Manchester United's home form is not great this season. And regardless of competition, it has not been great. And Liverpool away from home, to be fair, haven't been the greatest either, but Liverpool just seem more willing to play stronger matchups in the FA Cup, at least this season. And uh, Manchester United seem less willing to, uh, or sorry, more willing to pay, to play kind of players that have been more or less forgotten about. And I think because of that, Liverpool's starting lineup coming out will, will just be too much for Manchester United. I think it's going to be close, but I think Liverpool will win 1-0. I'll take opposite. Manchester United win 1-0. I think we see some rotation out of the sides, uh, given that it's uh, they both want to win the Premier League more than anything. And I'm just going to guess that's going to come down to like some dumb goal, like from McTominay or something. Or like 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 Pogba hits it like from way out, and you're like, that shouldn't be allowed to happen. But it did. So I'm confident in United 1-0. It feels right, like, why don't you it take feels us like to Italy? Games, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, down to Italy, uh, we have a we have a fun matchup: Juventus versus Napoli in the Supercoppa Italiana, and it's going to be a neutral venue in the home of Sassuolo, and it's going to this is going to be an interesting game. Uh, Juventus Napoli, Juventus a traditionally strong side, but Napoli have been very very good so far. Uh, but I think Napoli are going to come out on top because they've been on a bit of a winning streak lately, whereas Juventus just had that disappointing loss to Inter. So I think Napoli will win this, and I'm going to go for 2-1. to one. Okay. Wait, you said Napoli would win this 2-1? Yes, to one? I said mm, Napoli. Okay. I had to process that because we've, we've been having the same uh, stat lines. I'm gonna, I also say 2-1. to one. Uh, but to Juventus this time, I think McKenny coming back is huge. This is not even me uh, speaking as uh, like an American fanboy. Uh, a lot of Italian publications do say that McKenny has been insanely important for Juventus. So I think I think that's going to be big. It is a neutral site, so it's not like one of them has a uh, home advantage. And I think I think Pirlo is going to just force them to win this trophy. I think I think he he needs this. He needs this. It'll be 2-1. But something that might not be 2-1, perhaps, is Leverkusen versus Dortmund. So let's go up to Germany. Uh, so for me personally, the way I see this, they're both uninspiring last weekend. Uh, Leverkusen falling to a good Union Berlin team, and Dortmund splitting points between relegation candidates Mainz. But I say, I say to hell with all the underwhelmingness. Uh, I'd say look out for Leon Bailey because he hasn't scored since December. He's a good player, and he'll be hungry for it. Look out for uh, Erling Haaland because I think he'll also get some goals. Uh, 
last time that these uh, two have met and have scored fewer than four goals in a game between them has been 2017. Every meeting so far has been 4-0, you know, 5-3 or whatever. It's been a lot of high-scoring games. I say the same. I say 2-2. Goals from, like I said, Leon Bailey, Erling Holland, and, you know, Jude Bellingham. How about him? How about him? 2-2. They split the points. Jack? All right. Uh, interest, interesting. Uh, I'm I'm going to be a little bit different again. I think that this is going to be a game for Dortmund. They... They need to they need to win a game like this. They okay. they had a poor start to the season, and they want to climb up the table. This is going to be a hotly contested clash. Both are equal on twenty nine points, and I think Dortmund just Erling Holland coming back from injury and Jaden Sancho starting to fire again is just going to prove to be too much for Leverkusen. And I'm going to go for let's say four to three. Whoa, for, whoa. for Dortmund, we're we're gonna we're gonna live a little risky on this one. And okay, say four if, to three. If you get that right, you fully deserve it. You fully deserve <laughs> it. All right. Well, maybe a game that's a little easier to predict: the U.M. U.S. Women's National Team versus the Colombia Women's National Team. Uh, what do you think? Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see because as we're recording this right now, uh, they're about to play the first game in this series oh, yeah, uh, right. of two. So. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see that result, and it'll probably be pretty predictive of the second result, but uh, the U.S. women's national team, they're the world champions, uh, and I, I think this is going to be a performance by champions, and I think that they're going to pretty comfortably win this. We'll, we'll go for, just because it's a friendly, I don't think it'll be an absolute blowout, but I think that we'll probably see maybe a 3-1 to one score line. For the u.s women's national team we have the same scoreline we have the same scoreline that's why i'm changing it so 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 the head coach vladko coming in olympic preparations he's brought in some names that you know are veterans megan rapino carly lloyd are back despite being ancient at this point alex morgan's not here because she got covid but we have sam us rose lavelle mallory Pugh, ali krieger crystal dunn we're missing some england base players but it should still be fun uh Obviously, those are good players, but what it comes down to me is that this is, the, according to the FIFA rankings, number one versus 26. Last month, we beat number four Netherlands. We're going to be we're gonna be fine. We haven't lost in a game. We haven't lost a game in two years. I, I think we'll be fine. I say it now, and we're going to get blown out like 7-0. But for this, uh, for this second game in the series, you said 3-1? Yep. Yep. Four zero. Wow. Okay. A clean four zero. Sheet. I okay. yeah. I, I, I'm I'm saying I'm saying they don't have any firepower for that. But what game will probably have a lot of firepower? That was a bad transition, but we're sticking with it. Is Milan versus Atalanta? That's right. We're having two Italian matchups this round of predictions. Uh, I have nothing to say about this, so I'm just gonna go off what you say. Go ahead. Okay. Uh. Well, first of all, I just want to provide a little bit of history for this game because. Both of these teams are located in the Lombardy region of Italy, so this is a, this is a local derby, and they have a hotly contested rivalry. So that's why I I put this on the list at the last minute because I saw it was coming up, and these are both teams that are challenged. Well, no, AC Milan is challenging for the Serie A title, 
and Atalanta are challenge are getting up there. They had a disappointing 0-0 draw this past weekend, but this is going to be a game full of goals. AC Milan is firing. Atalanta almost like tend to score a lot of goals in the games they play in. Uh, usually more than two at least. And I think that this is going to be a very fun game to watch. Uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic is back. He just scored two goals yeah. in, a, in their uh, last game uh, against Cagliari. Eh, I always mispronounce it. Just be this. You can argue that this is bias, but I I believe in Atalanta. They they no pulled chance. off a win over Liverpool, and I think that this is going to be a close game. But I think it's going to be three to two in Atalanta's favor. An okay. upset win. Whoa. Upset win. That's I, crazy. I have no reasoning for this. I do not follow either of these teams. I'm going 2-0 to Milan just because I think it'd be funny to have you be really wrong. Yes. And all right. There we go. Those are our five predictions. I'm excited to see who comes out on top. So, yeah, that's it for us. Jack, do you have anything else before we sign off? Uh, no, just a, just a reiteration of what we said at the beginning. Thank you so much for the early support on this. And, uh, again, follow our Twitter at final third show on, uh, on there. And then also check out our YouTube channel, uh, after this, because we will be uploading some clips eventually from this episode and all future episodes. Yes. So yeah. And if you're listening to this, uh, and you like it, give it a follow, give it a rating, tell your friend, tell your dad and yeah, follow us on Twitter. Do everything you need to do, and we'll see you guys same time, same place next week. See you.